Hi everyone, the Gazette has a new name. It's now called Nostalgia USA, and each month it's getting better. A real entertainment experience. And within each issue, there will be special pricing on selected oldtimeradiodvd.com collections, only available to our subscribers of the Nostalgia USA. Take advantage today by subscribing at oldtimeradiodvd.com. Nostalgia USA, special pricing. What a combination. Go to oldtimeradiodvd.com today. You'll be glad you did. Let's now join our featured presentation. Once in the wooden stem and once in the amber. 
Each of these men, stunned as you observe with silver bands, must have cost more than the pipe did originally. The man must value the pipe highly when he prefers to patch it up rather than buy a new one with the same money. You know, nothing has more individuality than a pipe, save perhaps watches and bootlaces. And what else do you deduce from this one? Hmm. The indications here are neither very marked nor very important. Admitting defeat, Holmes. That's not like you. The owner is a muscular man, energetic, left-handed, with an excellent set of teeth, careless in his habits, and with no need to practice economy. Beyond that, I can deduce nothing. You're joking, of course. By no means. How can you say he's well-to-do if he smokes a seven-shilling pipe? The tobacco, Watson. This is Grosvenor mixture at eightpence an ounce. It could get an excellent smoke for half the price, so he obviously has no need to practice economy. Oh, obviously. And the rest? He shares my habit of lighting his pipe at lamps and gas jets. It's quite charred all down one side. Look. Couldn't a match have done that? Certainly not. Why should a man hold a match to the side of his pipe? But you couldn't light it at a lamp without charming the bowl. The charring is all on the right side of the pipe, so he's a left-handed man. And see where he's bitten through the amber. It takes a muscular, energetic fellow, and one of a good set of teeth to do that. Where is the mystery in all this? <sighs> Don't you ever get tired of always being right? Not in the least. Ah, the pipe's owner, I presume. I beg your pardon. I should have knocked. Yes, of course, I should have knocked. I'm a little upset, and you must put it down to that. Uh, please, Mr. Monroe, sit down before you fall down. Yes, I shall. Who told you my name? How do you know me? If you wish to preserve your incognito, I suggest that you cease writing your name on the lining of your hat, Mr. Grant Monroe. You must be Sherlock Holmes. And this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. I can see that you haven't slept for a night or two, Mr. Monroe. That tries a man's nerves more than work and even more than pleasure. Now, you wish to employ me as a consulting detective? And as a man of the world. My whole life seems to have gone to pieces, and I don't know what to do. I hope to God you'll be able to tell me. Please, furnish me with the facts of your case without further delay. It's a very delicate thing. Uh, one doesn't like to speak of one's domestic affairs to strangers. It seems dreadful to discuss the conduct of one's wife with two men whom I've never seen before. But I've got to the end of my tether, and I must have advice. Mr. Monroe, my friend and I have listened to a good many strange secrets in this room, and we've had the good fortune to bring peace to many troubled souls. I trust that we may do as much for you. Is something the matter, Doctor? I beg your pardon. I was just looking at your teeth. You go on. Oh. Uh, very well. <clears throat> I've been married for three years. Uh, during that time, my wife and I have loved each other as fondly and lived as happily as any two that ever were joined. Uh, we've not had a difference in thought or word or deed, not one. Until recently? Until last Monday. Kindly let me have the facts, Mr. Monroe. There's one thing that I want to impress upon you before I go any further, Mr. Holmes. Effie loves me. Don't let there be any mistake about that. She loves me with a whole heart and soul and never more than now. I know it. I feel it. I cannot build a case on the feelings. Give me facts. As you wish. Effie was a widow when I met her first, even though she was only 25. Her married name? Hebron. She went out to America when she was young and lived in Atlanta, where she married a lawyer with a good practice. They had a child, but the yellow fever broke out badly in the place, and both husband and child died of it. Good God. How terrible. She told you this. I have seen his death certificate. Understandably, she seconded America, and she came back to live with a maiden aunt in Pinner. She had only been in England six months when I met her. We fell in love, and we married a few weeks afterwards. 
Congratulations, Mr. Munro. I'm a hop merchant, and I have an income of seven or eight hundred. We took a nice eighty-pound-a-year villa at Norbury. It's very crunchified, considering it's so close to town. There's an inn and two houses a little above us, and a cottage at the other side of the field. And except those, there are no houses until you get halfway to the station. This is relevant, I take it? Exceedingly, Mr. Holmes. My wife and I were just as happy in our new home as could be wished. I promise you there was never a shadow between us until she asked for the money. The money? Effie's husband left her comfortably off. She had a capital of about £4,500, which had been so well invested by him that it returned an average of 7%. When we married, my wife made over everything to me. Rather against my will, for I saw how awkward it would be if my business affairs went wrong. But she insisted. Well, about six weeks ago, she came to me. Grant, when I gave you that money, you said that if ever I wanted any, I was to ask you for it. Of course, my dear. It's your money. Very well. I want a hundred pounds. A hundred pounds? I thought you just wanted to buy a new dress or something. What on earth do you want a hundred pounds for? I thought bankers didn't ask questions like that. You are my banker, aren't you? Well, if you really mean it, Effie, then of course you must have it. Oh, yes. I really mean it. Very well. I'll write you out a cheque. And you... you won't tell me what you want it for? Someday, perhaps. And you were content with her answer? Well, I don't know whether content is the word I'd use. You see, Effie has always been a woman of a frank, open nature, and this was the first time there'd ever been any secret between us. It may have nothing to do with what happened afterwards, but I thought it only right to mention it. And what did happen afterwards, Mr. Munro? I told you about the cottage not far from our house. There's just a field between us, but to reach it you have to go along a road and then turn down a lane. Just beyond it is a nice little grove of Scotch firs, and I used to be very fond of strolling down there, for trees are always a neighbourly kind of thing. The cottage has been empty about eight months. Describe it, please. It's a pretty two-storey place, with an old-fashioned porch and a honeysuckle about it. Sounds charming. Yes, I've often thought what a nice little homestead it would make. Mr. Monroe, we are veering off the subject. What occurred at the cottage? Well, last Monday evening, I was taking a stroll down that way, when I met an empty van coming up the lane, and saw a pile of carpets and things lying about on the grass plot beside the porch. It was clear that the cottage had finally been let. Naturally, I wondered what sort of folk they were who'd come to live so near us. And as I looked, I suddenly became aware of a face watching me from one of the upper windows. There was something unnatural about that face, Mr. Holmes. Inhuman. Was it a man's face or a woman's? I couldn't say. I was some little way off, so I couldn't make out the features. But its colour made the greatest impression on me. It was a livid, dead yellow, and with something set and rigid about it which was shockingly unnatural. Just seeing it set a chill right down my back. A most disturbing experience. Just so, Doctor. I was so disturbed that I determined to see a little more of the new owner of the cottage. I moved quickly forward to get a nearer view of the person who was watching me. But as I did so, the face suddenly disappeared. Stealing myself, I knocked at the door, which was instantly opened by a tall, gaunt woman with a harsh, forbidding face. And what may you be wanting? I'm a new neighbour. I see you, Charming woman. She as good as told me to mind my own business. 
Well, for the rest of the evening, I couldn't get that apparition at the window out of my mind. Did you mention this incident to your wife? Effie is a nervous, highly strung woman, so I determined that I'd say nothing about the yellow face. Before I went to sleep that night, I did mention that the cottage was now occupied. To which she replied? She made no reply. I slept much more lightly than usual that night, uh, perhaps because of my little adventure, I don't know. But half in my dreams, I was dimly conscious that something was going on in the room, and gradually I became aware that my wife had dressed herself and was slipping on her mantle and her bonnet. At what time is this? Three in the morning. I keep my watch under my pillow. I was about to murmur out some sleepy words of surprise or remonstrance at this untimely preparation, when suddenly I saw Effie's expression in the mirror, and astonishment held me dumb. She was deadly pale and breathing fast, glancing furtively towards the bed to see if she had disturbed me. Then, thinking that I was still asleep, she slipped from the room, and an instant later I heard the creaking of the front door. Did you follow her? No. I lay there, turning the thing over in my mind, trying to find some possible explanation. What on this earth could my wife be doing out on the country road at three in the morning? But the more I thought about it, the more extraordinary and inexplicable it appeared. How long was Mrs. Munro out of the house? Uh, Twenty minutes. I was still puzzling over it when she returned. But what? You're awake. Where have you been, Effie? I don't wonder you're surprised. I, I never remember having done such a thing in my life before. The fact is, I felt as though I were choking. I needed to get some fresh air. Some fresh air? Exactly. I think that I might have fainted if I hadn't gone out. I'm quite myself again now. But all the time she was telling me this story, Mr. Holmes, she never once looked in my direction, and I observed that her fingers were trembling. But you didn't challenge your wife. In the same circumstances, Doctor, would you have done differently? No, I suppose not. I should have gone to the city the next day, but I just couldn't put my mind to business matters. I sensed that Effie knew I didn't believe the story she told me the night before. We hardly said a word to each other during breakfast, and afterwards I went out for a walk. This time I was the one who needed fresh air. I went as far as the Crystal Palace, spent an hour in the grounds, and was back in Norbury by one o'clock. I stopped at the cottage to see if I could catch another glimpse of the yellow face at one of the windows. Imagine my surprise, Mr. Holmes, when the door suddenly opened and my wife walked out. This is where you went last night. You think I can't tell? I
Well, Mr. Holmes, pulling at my sleeve, she led me away from the cottage. As we went, I glanced back, and there was that yellow, livid face watching us out of the upper window. What link could there be between that creature and my wife? My mind could never be easy again until I knew. Dear, dear, Mr. Monroe, you have really behaved in a remarkably foolish manner. I beg your pardon? You had before you a perfect opportunity to discover who was the occupant of the house, and you threw it away. My wife, Mr. Holmes. Artifice is the chief weapon in a woman's arsenal. Mr. Holmes is of the opinion that women are never to be entirely trusted, Mr. Monroe. Not even the best of them. Well, as it happens, Mr. Holmes, I did go inside the house. Ah. Just three days later. I'd gone into town that day, but instead of returning on the 3.36, my usual train, I took the 2.40. So you already suspected your wife of not abiding to your agreement? Can you really blame me for that? Well, when I arrived home, there was no sign of Effie. I questioned the maid, but all she could say was that she thought her mistress might have gone out for a walk. I rushed upstairs to make sure that she wasn't in the house. As I did so, I happened to glance out of one of the upper windows, and I saw the maid running across the field in the direction of the cottage. So your wife had gone over there and had asked the servant to call her if she should return unexpectedly? Not even the best of them. I rushed over there, determined to end the matter once and forever. I saw my wife and the maid hurrying back along the lane, but I didn't stop to speak to them. In that cottage was the secret which was casting a shadow over my life. I vowed that it would be a secret no longer, come what may. I didn't even knock when I reached the door. I just turned the handle and rushed in. And what did you discover? A kettle was singing on the fire in the kitchen, a large black cat curled up in a basket, but no sign of the Scotswoman whom I'd seen before. I ran into the other room, but it was equally deserted. And then I rushed up the stairs, only to find the two other rooms empty. There was no one at all in the house? No one. The furniture and pictures were common and vulgar, save in the one chamber, at the window of which I'd seen the strange face. That was comfortable and elegant, and all my suspicions rose into a fierce, bitter flame when I saw that on the mantelpiece stood a copy of a full-length photograph of my wife, which had been taken only at my request three months ago. I'm truly sorry, Mr. Munro. I stayed long enough to make certain that the house was absolutely empty. Then I left it, feeling a weight at my heart such as I'd never had before. My wife was waiting for me in the hall as I entered my house, but I was too hurt and angry to speak with her, and pushing past her, I made my way into my study. She followed me, however, before I could close the door. Sorry I broke my promise, Aunt. But if you knew all the circumstances, I'm sure that you would forgive me. Then tell me! I can't, Grant, I can't! Until you tell me who's living in that cottage, and to whom you've given that photograph, there can never be any confidence between us. Now let me go! When did this occur? Yesterday, Mr. Holmes. And I have not seen her since, nor do I know anything more about this strange business. It is the first shadow that has come between us, and it has so shaken me that I don't know what I should do for the best. Suddenly this morning, it occurred to me that you were the man to advise me. So I have hovered to you now, and I place myself unreservedly in your hands. If there is any point which I have not made clear, pray question me about it. 
But above all, tell me quickly what I am to do, for this misery is more than I can bear. The face at the window. You appear to have been disagreeably impressed by it. It seemed to be of an unusual colour, and to have a strange rigidity about the features. When I approached, it vanished. Tell me, have you ever seen a photograph of her first husband? No, there was a great fire in Atlanta very shortly after his death, and all her papers were destroyed. And yet she had a certificate of death. You say that you saw it. Yes, she got a duplicate after the fire. Have you ever met anyone who knew her in America? Uh, no. Did she ever talk of revisiting the place, or receive any letters from there? Uh, no. I should like to think over the matter a little now. If the cottage is now permanently deserted, we may have some difficulty. If, on the other hand, as I fancy is more likely, the inmates were warned of your coming and left before you entered yesterday, then they may be back now and we should clear it all up easily. And then why don't I just go... No, you must do nothing without my guidance, Mr. Monroe. Return to Norbury and examine the windows of the cottage again. If you have reason to believe that it is inhabited, do not force your way in, but send a wire to Baker Street. We should be with you within an hour of receiving it, and we shall then very soon get to the bottom of the business. And if the place is still empty? Then I shall come out tomorrow and talk it over with you. Goodbye. And above all, do not fret until you know that you really have cause to do so. Very well. Goodbye, gentlemen. Mr. Monroe? Yes, Doctor? Your pipe. Of course. Thank you. I'm afraid that this is a bad business, Watson. What do you make of it? It had an ugly sound. Yes. There's blackmail in it, or I'm much mistaken. And who's the blackmailer? Well... It must be the creature with the yellow face who lives in the only comfortable room in the place and has Effie Monroe's photograph above his fireplace. Why on earth would a blackmailer put a picture of his victim on display? A very pertinent question, my dear doctor. I would not have missed the case for worlds. Upon my word, there is something very attractive about that livid face at the window. That's not the way Grant Monroe was struck by it. I take it you have a theory, Holmes. A provisional one, but I shall be surprised if it does not turn out to be correct. This woman's first husband is living in that cottage. Her first husband? The dead husband? Why do you think so? How else can we explain her frenzied anxiety that her second one should not enter it? The facts, as I read them, are something like this. This woman was married in America. Her husband developed some hateful qualities, or perhaps contracted some loathsome disease and became perhaps a leper or an imbecile. She flies from him at last, returns to England, changes her name, and starts her life, as she thinks, afresh. She's been married three years and believes that her position is quite secure, having shown her husband the death certificate of some man whose name she's assumed. And suddenly her whereabouts are discovered by her first husband, or we may suppose by some unscrupulous woman who has attached herself to the invalid. The Scotch woman. Just so. They write to the wife and threaten to expose her. She asks for a hundred pounds and endeavours to buy them off. They come in spite of it. And when the husband mentions casually to the wife that there are newcomers in the cottage, she knows in some way that they are her pursuers. In some way. Don't interrupt, Watson. She waits until her husband is asleep, and then she rushes down to endeavour to persuade them to leave her in peace. Having no success, she goes again next morning, and her husband meets her as she comes out. She promises not to go there again. But two days afterwards, the hope of getting rid of those dreadful neighbours is too strong for her, and she makes another attempt, taking down with her the photograph which had probably been demanded from her. In the midst of this interview, the maid rushes in to say that the master has come home, on which the wife, knowing that he would come straight down to the cottage, hurries the inmates out of the back door, into the grove of fir trees, probably, which Monroe mentioned was nearby. In this way, he finds the place deserted. I shall be very much surprised, however, if it's still so when you reconnoitres it this evening. Well, Doctor, what do you think of my theory? It's all surmise. Perhaps. 
but at least it covers all the facts. I doubt whether the evidence will lend itself to any other interpretation. Have I ever been wrong before? Yes. When? The Musgrave case. The Musgrave case was one of my earliest successes. But the murderer got away. <laughs> A mere detail. I am not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. My deductions are correct in every particular. Holmes, what are you always saying? It is a capital mistake to theorize before one is in full possession of the facts. Well, when new facts come to our knowledge, there will be time enough to reconsider. In any case, I'd be very much surprised if my solution doesn't prove to be correct. But for now, we can do nothing until we have a message from our friend. Then Lucy's strength returned? 
when she became well enough to travel? I had an overwhelming desire to see her once more. I struggled against it, but in vain. I knew the danger. I determined to have Lucy over here. I sent a hundred pounds to the nurse, and I gave her instructions about this cottage, so that she might come as a neighbour, without my appearing to be in any way connected with her. I pushed my precautions so far as to order her to keep the child in the house during the daytime, and to cover up her little face and hands, so that even those who might see her at the window shouldn't gossip about there being a black child in the neighbourhood. If I'd been less cautious, I might have been more wise, but I was half crazy with fear that you should learn the truth. It was you who told me first that the cottage was occupied. I should have waited for the morning, but I couldn't sleep for excitement, and so at last I slipped out. But you saw me go, and that was the beginning of my troubles. Next day you had my secret at your mercy, but you nobly refrained from pursuing your advantage. Three days later, however, the nurse and child only just escaped from the back door as you rushed in at the front one. And now at last you know it all. And I ask you, what is to become of us, my child and me? Effie, I'm not a very good man, but I think that I'm a better one than you've given me credit for being. Lucy, come here, my child. Take my hand. That's right. Come along, my dear. We can talk more comfortably at home. Home? Home. Watson, it appears that we've outlived our usefulness here. I think we shall be of more use back in London. I quite agree, Holmes. By the way, old fellow, if it should ever strike you that I am getting a little overconfident in my powers, giving less pains to a case than it deserves, kindly whisper Norbury in my ear Thank you.